Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to Turn the Page Podcast. This is Jen, your host today, and I'm here with the author of a really exciting and thrilling new novel. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm Deborah Goodrich Royce, and I'm here to talk about, this is actually an advanced copy of Refro, the lovely cover with the birds of paradise and then the spider. We can talk about that spider if you want. So I write thrillers and I like to call my books identity thrillers. I, by that, I mean, they, you know, they examine puzzles of identity, that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, uh, delving and peeling of the onion of secrets that people keep. My characters always have secrets. Mm. I love that. I love the cover and I love all of the stuff in this book about secrets and how they affect families for generations beyond, you know, when they are are originally kept. Um, Before we get into the book itself, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your background, because it's super interesting. You've done a lot of really cool things. And I'm wondering if you could talk uh, a little bit about how your, uh, your various experiences and your journey led you to writing. Yeah, so I think everything in life has led to writing. So I had a, you know, a bit of a a series of chapters, if you will, which I think a lot of people have. And I think women are particularly adept at handling life chapters because I think historically we've expected them. We've, you know, expected to have uh, things that we do. If if we marry and have children, if we don't marry and have children, we still expect there to be changes along the way. And I think up until very recently, men have not been as accustomed to that. I think whether a man is in the corner office or he's on the factory floor, I'm a Detroit girl, so a lot of factory workers there. I think men, at least in the 20th century, really expected to have a job for, you know, right when they got out of school till the retirement. Mm. So I went to college in Ohio. I'm from Detroit, like I said, um, and I majored in French and Italian, studied in Paris. But because my school was so very small, I was a dance minor and I acted in plays without being a theater major. So the summer before my senior year, I auditioned for a movie that came to town, a big United Artists film with Frank Langella and Tom Hulse. It was a musical about summer stock theater called Those Lips, Those Eyes, which is such a a great title. It sounds a little off color. It was not. (laughs) And I was hired as a background dancer. And I think it gave me the very false impression that that was a very easy career to just hop into. So the choreographer invited me to come to New York to audition for him. So my first stop in New York City after college was the Minskoff Theater. And I stepped in the door to audition for this choreographer. And spoiler alert, I was not cast. So I spent about a year pursuing a dance career. And just, I don't think I really made the cut as a dancer. I don't think I was good enough. And I thought, well, I'll give acting a try before 
I find another path. I had this idea that I'd go to Georgetown since I love languages. And I had an easier path with acting. I within a, I did a lot of commercials and within a year, I landed a huge contract role on All My Children, which was a soap opera that no longer exists. And I played Erica Kane's evil sister, Silver. So I did that for a couple of years, was written out of that, and then went out to Hollywood. And I worked for 10 years as an actress in film and television. And then through a weird series of changes, my first husband and I moved to Paris where he'd grown up with our two children. And I was hired as a reader uh, by a French film studio. It was They were looking for native English speaking readers. They were investing in English language movies, both British and American. And they wanted the first look to be someone who spoke the language. And that's kind of a cool entry level job in, in the editorial world in film. I mean, it, at the time, I think it paid $60 a script. So you read it, you synopsize it, you know, maybe a five page synopsis, and then you do a page of comments. So I did that while we were living in France. And then my first husband was hired by Julia Roberts because she had a deal at Disney and I was hired at Miramax as the story editor. So we moved back to New York and had a really fun life in the 90s in New York uh, in the movie business. And then quick, 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 uh, life changed. Uh, my uh, marriage ended. And in a few chapters, I remarried, moved to Connecticut. And this weird twist and turn, We, my husband and I, my current husband, we bought a cinema, a beautiful 1939 cinema in Stamford, Connecticut. And in the figuring out of how to run a not-for-profit art house cinema, we developed a close friendship with Gene Wilder. And Gene Wilder, for 10 years, he would come to the Avon three times a year to talk about movies. And in our friendship, uh, he said to me at a certain point, are you a writer? I think you're a writer. And I said, well, yeah, kind of, you know, I wrote this screenplay and he read some stuff and he was really my first encourager. So coming to the present, I am a writer of a certain age and I really got serious at the empty nest. And that's another thing I like to say to younger women, whatever you're doing, there are these later chapters. I'd been writing for a very long time, but when my youngest child eight years ago was grown and flown and she was more the worry child, I felt like I got the real estate in my brain back. That I felt like my brain had been colonized and I really, I love my children, <laughs> but it was this, I'd always been able to work while raising children, but writing is a very deep, silent dive mm -hmm. that for me was kind of uh, a, a, a no fit with raising children. So this is my third book coming out January 10th. And um, that brings us to the present day. Mm, that is so interesting. And I think that there were, you know, there were so many experiences along the way that I imagine like shaped your approach to writing and your approach to story. I'm wondering if in particular being a reader, uh, consuming so many stories for a living and analyzing them, did that help you develop a sense of um, like story structure or anything that helped you as a writer? 
So much so, and that's an excellent question. I feel like my years at Miramax were my writing school. I didn't go to graduate school or any particular writing program, but when you're in that editorial chair and you're really forced to say what works and what doesn't work with somebody else's writing, you have to become very thoughtful. You have to read a lot. Um, and with movies, it's such a different thing because I'm a very humble movie viewer. When I go to the movies, no matter that I've been in the business, I'm completely awed by a movie that works. See the Fablemans. I, if you haven't seen it, it's so good. It just gels. So it's a miracle when a movie works. But when you're looking at a movie from the page, it, it, it it's almost like you need a crystal ball to know what's going to work with it because there's so many places along the road where it can go wrong. Whereas with a novel, it's it's your book. And, and at the end of the day, when you get to that point where you think you really have a book, you can kind of know that it that's you and what you, you put into it. A movie is just, it's, it's this uh, cast of thousands, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting to me, the difference in those two processes, but still how, you know, they can inform each other so much. Um, I was wondering uh, what you said about uh, before about uh, writing books that are about um, identity and puzzles about identity and secrets. Um, I wondered, as you were saying this, um, do you think that this might have a little something to do with your soap opera background too? Because so much of that is storytelling about secrets and families and intergenerational stories, you know? Well, I think for sure soap operas gave me the key to the short chapter with the cliffhanger. Because you know, soap operas, you have the scene and then it's like, dun -dun -dun -dun, and you have the two characters looking at each other and they have that long eyeball gaze. My books don't do that, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. But I do love that cliffhanger pace where, and I do like short chapters. So you keep reading, you wanna go to the next thing. And that's what soap operas mastered. You know, they would leave you one day having to tune in the next. And of course, now we stream. So, you know, next episode's up in five seconds. And yes, every character in a soap opera has, you know, a hidden twin upstairs or, you know, a child that they didn't declare. <laughs> but also, um, I did, when I was an actress, I did the movie about Ted Bundy with Mark Harmon. And I played the woman who married him and they really watered down the characters. So they didn't show the fact that these two people married because he was on death row when this thing came out and she was alive and married to him and had a child with him. And they were worried that she would sue them. But as I was researching her mm -hmm. and there wasn't so much known about her, you know, there wasn't this, there wasn't the internet. I kept thinking like, why, why would this woman marry Ted Bundy? And we were kind of contemporaneous with it going on. And even at that moment, it didn't seem possible that you could really not believe that the guy did it. But that's all I came up with at the end, that somehow she believed he didn't do it, that there's a so that so that's an identity puzzle. Mm -hmm. What is it about a person? So he's a psychopath. That's a distinct category. But there was something about him that he portrayed something completely different. Um, I worked at Miramax. I worked 
or Harvey Weinstein. I did not know about the aspect of his life that came out later. Mm. I do not judge the women. I completely believe the women. I don't condone his behavior. And yet, how is it that I was in those offices? I wasn't his assistant. I wasn't making his personal appointments. Mm. But that's a fascinating thing that people yeah. can live in a compartmentalized way that you might see one thing and not see another. And, and it fascinates me how that happens. And, and those are very extreme examples that I just gave you. Mm. But I think we all have secrets and most of our secrets just happen to be a little bit more benign. Oh, absolutely. That is so interesting. And, you know, it really strikes me too, that like so much of what you were just talking about is the way that secrets um, are not really just about individuals, but they can also be used in order to, um, you know, hold power over people or yeah. to deprive other people of power. Like who knows what can affect a lot of stuff. And I think you see that in your books too. Yes. And it's certainly in, in the, in the water that we drink right now, this is a time of exposure of secrets. And as unsettling as it is, I think through, you know, earlier eras of history, we lived with, you know, not knowing what we didn't know. And then, I mean, let's look at the pedophile priest scandal. I mean, that was so shocking. And then one by one, the story came out that it, it had affected a lot of people. This book, uh, Reef Road took its inspiration, which I use that word lightly, from the murder of my mother's best friend, which happened in 1948 in Pittsburgh. My mother and this girl were 12, um, and it remained an unsolved crime. And I knew about it as a child. I knew it as my mother told me. I've tried to remember when I would have first known it because I'm sure she didn't tell me when I was little, but at some point I knew this story. And so when the pandemic shut us down in March of 2020, I started researching it because, you know, there I was with time on my hands. And of course, now speaking of the internet, all the newspaper articles, I mean, I was able to read everything. I was able to get the coroner's report. I was not able to get the police report. They said no. So because it's, it's an unsolved crime and they're just not handing that out. Uh, so I, that was a thing that happened that had an aspect of secrecy around it because in this case, the brother who was much older, she was 12, the brother was 19. He was arrested multiple times, never charged, never convicted. Um, and because of that, I didn't want to write it as nonfiction. I do, and I don't write nonfiction anyway. I didn't really want to mess with real people's lives, but I wanted to do a, a, a real dive into that effect that this single act of violence has on all these other people. I mean, you think about Michelle McNamara mm -hmm. with I'll Be Gone in the Dark, that really defined her life. Mm -hmm. She had grown up in a, outside of Chicago in a little town where a girl was murdered and something was in her consciousness and she became obsessively interested in a series of crimes in California and was really instrumental in solving them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. I'm really interested in the ways in which this story is, as you said, inspired by things that happened, but um, use them fictionally. 
And I'm wondering about, you know, what placing those memories and those uh, experiences in the realm of fiction, what that does for um, you, you know, as you process these things, do you actually find that like fiction in a weird inverse way, like allows you to tell the truth more or a different kind of truth? A thousand percent. And it's exactly what I say. In fiction, you can really get to the essence of the truth without the encumbrance of the minutia of facts. Mm -hmm. For example, the girl was murdered. The real girl had two brothers. In the story I'm telling, in the first round, uh, I had someone read it and she said, lose the second brother. It's just confusing. You just all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait, who's that? So that's a fact in the real story. You could not in nonfiction lose the second brother. It's a germane. Well, I don't, it's not necessarily germane, but it is a fact. So in, in the fictional retelling, I was able just to get to the core of what I wanted to explore. Was this the brother? Why? You know, let's talk about Michelle McNamara. So she was the term we use now quite flatteringly a citizen detective. Mm -hmm. She's a citizen detective. There are many out there, you know, everybody loves true crime. The term in 1948 Pittsburgh was used so disparagingly by the police. They were, they were aghast. I mean, it was a bit of a debacle. There were people running around, they were arresting the brother. These people were grabbing him and bringing him in. And it was, it really did seem like the Keystone cops, which is the, the chief of police, use that term. Wow. Um, so I was able to really cut through all that. I wanted to explore. So one of my protagonists is a writer in the pandemic lockdown in Florida. And we can talk about why I said it in the pandemic. Uh, and this writer is uh, obsessed with the murder of her mother's best friend. So her chapters are written almost like diary entries. She's very cerebral. She's very fixated on this murder, and she spends a lot of time delving into what this means. There's a parallel storyline of a younger woman who's about 40, who is married to a very handsome fellow from Buenos Aires, who disappears a couple weeks into the lockdown and is last seen in his face mask, getting on a plane with their two small children at Miami International, bound for Argentina, and she can't follow one of the things I liked about the pandemic, it felt like wartime. There, there were constraints put on the characters. I mean, if you see a thriller during a war, you, you have things that people can't do. So I liked the box it put people in. I didn't want to write about the pandemic as, you know, uh, the, the total focus. But as a setting, I thought it was very effective. Also, Florida. It was very hot. I happened to have been there that spring. It felt hotter. It felt buggier. It felt claustrophobic. And it just kind of worked. It reminded me, um, which I rewatched then. Do you remember Body Heat with Kathleen Turner and William Hurt? I yes. think, mm -hmm. Which was not very far from where I wrote and set this. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Hmm. Gosh, like there's so much to talk about there because I was fascinated with the pandemic setting as well as the Palm Beach setting. So let's talk about the pandemic first, you know, because it really reading the story really caused me to reflect on how the pandemic has been shaping 
our lives for the past few years, you know, because even though like 90% of our lives, let's say, aren't about the pandemic, you know, but it still is 100% influencing how we live and like where we go and what we do and all these things. And so like, yeah, how like did the pandemic help create like the emotional stakes of the story for you in a way? So much so, I it felt like I was in a hot house, mm-hmm. and that that feeling of being closed in. And I also think, if you write contemporaneously to what's going on, if you put what's going on around you a little bit in your book, in a way, you're writing history. It almost can turn into historical fiction at a certain point. Like I remember going back and doing a little editorial read toward the end, and there's a moment where the writer flips on the radio or the TV and she notices that ship coming into New York Harbor. Remember, it was called Comfort. When that happened, it was so shocking. In retrospect, it didn't turn into such a big deal. The ship wasn't used that much. But to see uh, this ship coming in that's going to be a hospital ship and to see a field hospital in Central Park it felt like a war zone. And I think it was kind of uh, interesting to insert teeny bits of that. Mm. I mean, I'm not looking to to traumatize people with the pandemic, but it was real. <laughs> it was that moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, um, gosh, like so interesting. And the book so really accurately evokes just how it sort of hung in the background of everything that we did for a while um and yeah it was like living in a war zone it became very surreal for you know very large long parts of time and I'm wondering too you know if this links up to what you were saying when we started about how like we are entering this sort of like truth telling moment where secrets are coming out and long uh long held uh truths are now coming out and stuff like that like i wonder if like the pandemic in a strange way like helped uh, push us to a point of like not breaking but just almost of like self examination or of like a critical breaking point for society that we just had to address these things you know I think there is a lot of that. And someone was telling me recently, which made me feel a little bit better about, I think we've come to a point where we don't cut each other very much slack. And we've we've come to a point where people are often assuming the worst of other people, which never is a very good thing. But someone was saying that is historically true of all pandemics. Mm -hmm. In wartime, people huddle together. You know, we're in this basement, come on in. We have five potatoes, we'll give you a half. Let's all hide together. Mm -hmm. Whereas in pandemics, Anybody could be the anybody could be bearing contagion. So it's a very different way of looking at our fellow human beings. So it was helpful to think about it's not that there's something so intrinsically wrong with us today that we're all fighting about everything. I think there was very much a component of the pandemic that brought that out. Mm-hmm. So everybody's pointing fingers. Uh, and I, I hope that settles down. 
Yeah. Yeah, me too. It feels like a pressure valve has been released in a way and that we are still like, it's still letting off a lot of steam and it's still very loud. Uh, But, you know, hopefully (laughs) we achieve some sort of balance again soon. That all plays into the story in so many ways. And it's just like one of the many things that makes it so relevant, I think, to what we're going through now. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the switching chapters and perspectives and how um switching the the voice like the person um how was that something that you kind of used in order to tell the story yeah that's a great question so the writer's chapters are written in first person and they're very stream of consciousness they are a bit like diary entries you get the feeling each of her chapters is called a writer's thoughts so you get the feeling that you know you are in her head, you are with her. Linda's chapters are called The Wife and um, they even have their own chapter numbers. It's like a book within a book. So for a while, you don't know if the writer's just writing this book. Maybe the writer is writing this book. Is Linda a real person? Are they there on this island of Palm Beach together? Uh, And that of course you will find out bit by bit by bit. It helped me So Linda's story is much more a plot-driven thriller. It has a a noir element. I I brought up Body Heat. Mm. Um, So she's written in third person. Uh, You need a little distance from Linda. You need to wonder about Linda a little bit. Uh, her, Her life is coming unglued, you know, when her family disappears. And everything is not quite what it seems. So I think it was very helpful, the change in voice to mm-hmm. set the tone and enable the reader to understand where he or she is uh, as, as you're switching back and forth. Mm. Yes. And I thought it, you know, it allowed you to do a lot of really interesting things with the idea of unreliable narrators, you know, mm-hmm. because I think that like, when you compare the two, obviously, right off the bat, the writer seems like the much more overtly uh, unreliable narrator, right? Because you're inside her head and it's kind of muddled and, you know, very up close. And it's uh, she's got a lot more going on that would make you maybe want to take a step back and think about what she is telling you. But I think that like Linda and the use of the third person allows you to play with that in such an interesting way because the story on the surface like sounds more objective because you know it's like a a, a distanced but like it's also an unreliable story in some ways in subtler ways you know and I think that like navigating what's happening when you're only getting little portions of the truth is so interesting it makes you like really active as a reader trying to figure out like what is happening right Right. And I like that. Those are I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. And I think Hitchcock employs those techniques so effectively, where you're not quite sure if you you have to. That's why it's so wonderful to see a movie like that on the big screen, because as you're looking at the huge screen, you're seeing things. Did you see a movie uh, with Mark Rylance last year? It was called something like The Tailor. Do you know the one I mean? Yes, the outfit. The outfit. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's fantastic. I've been recommending that to everybody here. <laughs> That's a good movie. And there's a moment. So we we can use this in a literary way in a novel and a filmmaker can use it visually on the big screen. There's a moment 
where the tailor is in his back room and there's something in the room that if you have the big screen, you'll notice the other person walking around the room should not see that thing. And the tension as you watch this person walking around the room, questioning the tailor about something. And for a while, then you come to the point where you think, oh, that person doesn't see that thing. And then the attention turns and you think, oh, he saw it all along. He was playing with us. And so you have to do it differently in a book, but it's the same kind of tension. Oh, that is so interesting and such an interesting comparison. And it is like sort of a, you know, a kind of uh, like sleight of hand almost that you have to do. Yeah. Like while something is in plain sight, you have to just like redirect gazes, you know, it's just super duper interesting. So I worked with an editor on my second book, Ruby Falls, which is much more of a Gothic thriller. And uh, she gave me the best note. She And I'm always comparing movies to books. She said, I want you to rewatch The Sixth Sense. Mm -hmm. So you think one thing is going on and there's a moment where you realize something altogether different is going on. And what happens in the movie, they play back certain scenes that you've seen already that you interpreted in one way and now you suddenly realize it was something different. Mm. So in that book, she said, you, and, and you must leave the breadcrumb trail. She put it this way. She said, nobody wants Agatha Christie anymore. They don't want this complete locked room mystery where all of a sudden the detective walks in and says, it was the parlor maid you saw on page three. And the reader's thinking, I didn't even look at that parlor maid. Wait a second. She said, you don't necessarily want the audience, to, the reader to figure it out. But when it's revealed, you want the reader to be able to say, oh, those were the clues. Mm. It was there. It wasn't completely concealed. So I think that's always a good note in a thriller that has a big uh, twist. And we can talk about the difference between a twist and a reveal. I think I write twists mm. thus far uh, for three books. We'll see if I can continue to come up with twists like that. Mm. That is interesting. How do you... Um... How how do you, would you describe the difference between a twist and a reveal? Well, let's talk about Agatha Christie. In Agatha Christie, someone was murdered. You know, someone was murdered. And the reveal is who murdered that person. Not really a twist so much. Uh, Sixth Sense is a twist. Mm. Gone Girl is a twist. You are, you think one thing is going on. And when you come to that big crescendo you realize it's something else entirely that's a twist gotcha okay yeah that makes a ton of sense to me and it, it, it occurs to me that a twist is actually much harder to reveal than than a reveal <laughs> a twist is harder to earn in a way because you have to do a lot of reverse yeah. engineering from a point in order to get there and have it have all the pieces come together in the way that you want it to right and not annoy people Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's a real balancing act. And it's very impressively done here. And I'm wondering, um, what is next for you? Are you working on anything right now? Yes. So I, um, I got an email some months ago, from someone I didn't remember. And it got me thinking about what that could mean. This person said certain things that 
corresponded to the timeline of my life, named certain places where I know I was. And uh, I, I couldn't remember this person. And I got to thinking about that. What if this is true? But what if it's not? And what else could it be if it's not true? And I'm about 100 pages into that. Uh, so that's been kind of fun. And then Reef Road, I'll start traveling in a few weeks right after the holidays with this book. And I'll travel for a few months and probably set aside the writing of the next book for a little bit. Oh, nice. Yeah, I saw that you have a, a pretty extensive tour planned for this book. And you're going to one of my favorite places, the Mysterious Bookshop in I love that. City. I... So I just like... You know, perfectly aesthetic store like it's so lots of books they just go it's it just takes your breath away you feel like you've walked back in time it's very special it really is I hope it's there forever (laughs) well thank you so much for coming to talk with us today I love this book so much and it was really really exciting to get to pick your brain a little bit about all of the things that went into it and I think that our uh, patrons and our listeners are really going to love it so thank you Thank you. The pleasure was mine and enjoy the holidays and happy new year. Yes. Thank you. You too. Okay. Listeners reef road is going to be available on January 10th at your favorite independent bookstore or library. That is it for this chapter and we will see you next time. Thank you. It's time to close this chapter of turn the page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.